Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Luke, um, chapter 14, verse 1, and then verses 7 through 14. And uh, this is, uh, is an interesting text, and it follows upon uh, what it leaves out is, is an important story that is a prelude to the text. But it's about the day that, on the Sabbath day, when Jesus has gone for a meal to the house of one of the leading Pharisees. And so, and they watch him closely. What happens before this part of the gospel begins is a man with dropsy comes in to the, to the, um, the banquet, and Jesus poses the question about whether is it legitimate to heal on the Sabbath or not. None of them will give their opinion. And uh, because while they have a programmed opinion to any question like that, the exception is always, well, you know, you're able to break the Sabbath to pull your ox or your ass out of a, out of a, a well, out of a pit. So why can't you heal someone? But to, they don't answer that. And then, and then once, that, once that happens, when Jesus does heal the man, he then goes on and he tells the guests a parable because he had noticed how they picked the places of honor. And we have to see kind of what this is. Um, it's not kind of our idea of just an ordinary meal. Um, it's more like our idea of, of a ceremonial meal, for instance, a, a political or an ecclesiastical meal where you're worried about who has the places of honor, who sits where. Well, the Orientals did this every single day. Every single meal they had was like this. And there was a very complex social system um, having to do with the political position, rank within the, the synagogue, wealth, and all of those kinds of things. And it was very easy then to mix up who was supposed to sit where and who was to receive the proper notification, the proper recognition. And... Um, and so what happens then is that Jesus begins to use this as, as an opportunity to talk about something much, much more important than where you sit at table. And so the first part of the gospel then is basically um, to tell you that you should not be seeking recognition and honor as a result of your position within society or your position within the church. And it says, when someone inviting you to a wedding feast, do not take your seat in the place of honor. He probably says wedding feast in order to spare the embarrassment for any of those here present at just the Sabbath meal that he's at. A more distinguished person than you may have been invited, and the person who invited you both may come and say, give up your place to this man. And then to your embarrassment, you would have to go and take the lowest place. No, when you are a guest, make your way to the lowest place and sit there so that when your host comes, he may say to you, my friend, move up higher. In that way, everyone with you at table will see you honored. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the man who humbles himself will be exalted. The lesson, then, <clears throat> is not social etiquette. The lesson, then, is not simply self-interest of not being embarrassed socially. And the lesson, then, is also not where you sit at table. But he sums up the lesson in the end, and he talks about 
both self-exaltation and humility. And this is an incredibly important lesson, and it's an incredibly important lesson for the Christian. For in the Middle Ages, certainly, the primary virtue that was celebrated and that was esteemed was the virtue of humility. And, um, and there's an interesting story then with this idea of humility being the greatest of virtues. And humility, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what humility means and what the Lord actually means by it. Um, but first of all, we, we have to see when, when go back again, or I go back again to the story of Martin Luther who had accepted this idea that humility was the primal virtue and that uh, he therefore, as a monk, um, was going to become the most humble he could become. And so he volunteered to clean the latrines. And I don't ask you to imagine what the latrines of the 15th century were like, or the 16th century. But it certainly was a humbling job. But he said what he discovered was is that the more humble he became, the more humble he was, the prouder he became of his humility. And in that pride, he began to develop his idea that works themselves have no meaning in relationship to salvation, and that we cannot in any way cooperate with grace to be to for our salvation, but we're simply the recipients of God's grace. And uh, he develops, therefore, in, in the scriptures it does say we are saved by grace, but Luther adds to that grace alone. In Catholicism we say, yes, we are saved by grace, but we also must cooperate with that grace in order for it to be effective and, and present in our hearts, in order to transform us, and in order to begin the process of sanctification. But that was not, Luther was not satisfied with that because he wanted certitude about what was his eternal destiny. And so he rejected the idea of cooperation and participation in grace, and therefore made grace simply an external phenomenon in our life. Um, and this is a radical difference from, from Catholicism, a radical difference from our sacramental system and from our spiritual life, because we are convinced that deep down inside, although original sin might have damaged us, each person still retains a modicum of goodness and, and, and of freedom. And therefore grace, when it comes to us, is able to be responded to, maybe minusculely at first, but certainly in the course of a lifetime through responding becomes more and more prevalent within our hearts, within our souls, within our lives. And we approach more closely then to the kingdom of heaven. But all that then goes back to this grappling with the idea of what it means to be humble. And I think that, that what Jesus is saying here is that humility is, number one, a lack of presumption about ourselves, about how great we are. That, as a matter of fact, the person who's going to try and take the higher place at table is the one who might have had an exaggerated sense of his own importance, an exaggerated sense of his own position within the society. And that uh, it's very easy in that not to be humble, but to be humiliated. And there is a difference. For to be humble is, first of all, to recognize the truth of who we are. And that's interesting, because we can't really be humble unless we know ourselves. 
And Bernard, St. Bernard tells us we cannot know ourselves unless we know our origin and our destiny. In other words, who we are is true only in relationship to our Creator and only in relationship to our Redeemer. So the truth of who we are has to be seen through the prism of the Redeemer and the Creator, through the, re through the prism of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord, the Redeemer. And only in that can we come to some kind of real sense of, of who we are and what our life is all about here on earth. And when we know ourselves, therefore, in relationship only to Jesus Christ and only to the Creator, we have a perspective on that life, a very, very um, important perspective, and one that says to us, you know, look at him and look at me. There's, there is an automatic humility in knowing ourselves as we truly are, because we stand in our own eyes, in our own mind, in comparison with God himself. And there we can see both our strengths, which are gifts from him, and our weaknesses, which are caused by ourselves or by the circumstances of our lives. And therefore, we're, we're pretty sure that, um, that if we go through this process of knowing who we are, that, that it's not going to be hard to be humble. And uh, because humil humility is not self-denigration, and humility is not saying we're someone we're not. If I can do something, then I'm obliged to be able to say that I can do that and to do it, but to recognize the source of it, which is the Lord, the Creator. It's, it's not humble to say, oh, I can't do that or I can't do that, when you really can and you know you can. That simply is false humility and that simply is untrue. If people know themselves, and alas, there's many people who don't know themselves in the sense that St. Bernard talked about, um, that it, it, was, it was a very, very important reality in our lives, a very important reality in our lives that we come to know. You know, in, in, even in human wisdom, for the days of Socrates, from the days of Socrates himself, one of his great lines was, know thyself. The beginning of all wisdom is to know thyself. That is echoed also in the spiritual life by the saints, and particularly by St. Bernard, although by many others, and uh, who say that the, first, that the first line, the first beginning of the spiritual life is self-knowledge. And because if we do know ourselves in the sense that St. Bernard spoke about, then we certainly know who we are in relationship with God. And in that relationship with God, we are humble because we know that we are not God. We find people, for instance, who will use authority to, to shore up their poor self-image. We know that there's a people who will try to get themselves into positions of power in order that they might feel good about themselves by trampling on the rights of others and therefore making themselves feel more powerful and more important. We know all of these, all of these um, sad uh, um, adventures of the human spirit, of the human mind, of human nature. But in the end, there's a fundamental reality, and that's what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel. And he warns, and he uses the image, the parable of the man who takes the highest seat and, uh, and then he says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and the man who humbles himself will be exalted. 
whoever it is, be he cleric or layman or, or elected official or medical doctor or psychologist or professor or parent even, whoever is able to exercise authority in the world has to recognize the source of that authority or they lack the truth about themselves. And in lacking the truth about themselves, they, in some sense or other, lack the whole understanding of themselves as a human person. And it's interesting to me that many of the really great people that I've known in my life are extremely humble. And uh, humble not in the self of self-deprecation or self-denigration, but humble in the sense of understanding what they have been given, what gifts they have, but also knowing what they don't have and uh, learning to expect and to be humble enough to accept that from others. Well then, after Jesus goes on to this example of what it means to be humble, he then says to his host, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not ask your friends, brothers, relations, or rich neighbors for fear they repay your courtesy by inviting you in return. No, when you have a party, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, that they cannot pay you back means that you are fortunate because repayment will be made to you when the virtuous rise again. And so there's a corollary then of this idea of humility, this idea of the recognition of the truth of who we are. Because if we recognize the truth of who we are, then we also begin to recognize the truth of the other person. And we began to see in all people then a sense of the nobility of spirit, a sense of the presence of the living God, a sense of something that's, that's real, something that's, that's common to the human spirit. Very few times do you meet someone who if in fact you allow them to reveal themselves to you rather than the other way around, you do not find within them some kind of inner nobility, some kind of spirit of goodness. And when that doesn't happen, then one must examine either oneself or realize they have encountered an exception in the human race. For most people, struggling with this idea of self-identity, struggling with the idea of what's the truth of my situation in the world, um, will in some way, shape, or form reveal that kind of insecurity in some way, shape, or form to those whom they encounter and those whom they meet. So that what this means then is not that you can never have your friends over for dinner. It never that doesn't mean you can't have your family over for holiday dinners and so forth like that. But it means don't do things for what you get out of it. Do things for the sake of others. And this takes us then in, into another very difficult situation and one that's hard to talk about and hard to explain. Don't do things just for what you get out of it, but do things for the sake of others. How possible is that? And that becomes an issue. For instance, if you do good to another person, you, you do get something back from it. You feel, well, you feel good about yourself, you know? Gee, see how generous I was, or gee, I'm so glad I was able to help somebody. Or it was a, but what always happens in that, ultimately, is when we get that satisfaction out of doing a good deed, that somehow or other, 
that places us above the other person in our own minds. Think about that. It's not certainly something you set out to do. It's not certainly say, well, I'm going to show them how much better I am than they are by, you know, by doing something for them. We don't do that. But we have to be very careful of the satisfaction that we receive. And, and I think that this, this happens a lot of times with good works and with generosity. <clears throat> I, 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 I think that sometimes, you know, we say, well, let's support an, um, a group of people less fortunate than we are. And once we support them, let us go down and look at them, you know? Um, let us go and, and observe them. And, and so let's, let's, let's see, you know, and reinforce our sense of doing something really well for others. The anonymous gift to people we will not be able to, in some way, shape, or form, experience the, the gratitude from or to see the goodness of what we have done probably is the safer way for the Christian to go. And I know that, for instance, that, um, you know, you read sometimes when there's conflict within the church, um, when, for instance, there's some kind of a decision made and everything, and uh, we don't agree with it, and then, and then we, we can say, um, <clears throat> well, you know, I don't know why they can say that or why they can do that. After all, um, I go out every week and take food to the poor, and I think that's wonderful, and I think that's a very good thing to do. But what, wh how do we identify that with justifying us, which making us so important that we don't have to be obedient to the legitimate authorities over us? How does that exempt us from living um, the, the, the difficulties and the struggles of the Christian life? How does that happen? And, and, I, and I think that, you know, the, the newspapers lately are filled with that kind of thing of self-righteousness and uh, condemnation of things that I disagree with and condemnations of things I were done wrong and, gee, and look at me, you know. Um, I, my, my, um, my ideas have not been accepted or my ideas have not been prevalent or have not prevailed. Where do we get the right, actually, to have ourselves prevail over others, to do things our own way? All of that comes actually and is addressed in this gospel. For first of all, when we do things for the sake of the return that we get, when we can say, well, I give food to the poor and therefore this justifies me and makes me a more, a more important member of society than you who do not do that, when we have no idea what else they might do in order to exemplify and in order to live out their faith. So, yeah. So we have to be very careful about the return that we get in good works. We know that Jesus says over and over again that, um, you know, that uh, people have already received their reward. Here he's talking about the reward that comes from himself when the virtuous rise again in the final judgment in the days of the kingdom of heaven and in, in the days of the Lord. So... So we go on with this, <clears throat> and we find this not, you know, and, and this is part of the problem with, within the contemporary church, not that, you know, that we should be ruled by autocracy. The government, the government, uh, the, the scriptures, the scriptures very obviously don't, um, the scriptures very obviously don't um, 
don't say that. They, uh, the scriptures have a way of uh, very, very clear that the generous heart is the heart that, that opens itself and, and, and to the Lord. And that opening the self to the Lord, the generous heart, therefore, is able to receive God into themselves and not so much the satisfaction for what they do. There's nothing wrong with satisfaction. I remember one time I made a distinction between you know, true charity and generosity and altruism. And someone says, well, what's wrong with altruism? And uh, there's nothing wrong with altruism except the motivation behind it. The altruism, and we, gosh, we find this everywhere. We find this in government programs. We find this in, in international United Nations programs. We find this self-righteousness that somehow or other, because I do this, this makes me wiser, this makes me better. What we do should open our hearts to the Lord, and what we do should be engaged with the idea of eternal life. And what we do, and Jesus says this too in the Gospels, when you have done everything you are supposed to do, say to yourself, I am a worthless servant. And I think people will say, well, that's just, you know, that's just over the top. No, it's not. It's absolutely what we're supposed to do. That in order for us to prevent taking, taking away from the good that we do by taking delight in it in such a way that we feel more important or feel better than other people, then we have somehow or other gone to the highest place. We have somehow or other taken the wrong seat at the table and we have somehow or other simply gratified ourselves. And while the consequences might be good for another, but not always with that mindset, for oftentimes it's just simply patronage, um, that, that, we, don't, that we, we, we don't realize that uh, functioning on the level of only natural goodness, not goodness that is connected to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is in some way, shape, or form a band-aid on the ills of society. For the gifts must go deeper. They must go, and, and I think I, I like to use the example in all of this of St. Louise de Marillac. She was the, uh, uh, one of the companions of St. Vincent de Paul and the foundress of the Daughters of Charity. And um, she dressed the Daughters of Charity, the children, the women that followed her in this life, she dressed them all alike. In other words, she gave them a religious habit. And it was the habit of the peasant women of northern France at the time. Um, we knew them many years ago as the ones with the great winged hats. Um, but as a matter of fact, uh, when they developed that particular habit, that was the custom, that was the costume of, of the peasant women. And, um, and then she sent them out and she gave them this advice. She says, I don't want you to be do-gooders. I want when you work and help other people, for that's what they did. They nursed, they taught, they helped the poor. And they were essential in the social life of, of Paris in the 17th and 18th century because they were the ones who fed the poor, who looked after them, and so forth. She says, I don't want you to think, you know, gee, see how good I am. I want them to see you all the same in order that they can understand that the goodness comes to them from Jesus Christ through the church. 
and that by the very fact that they identify the goodness with the Church of Jesus Christ and through that to Jesus Christ himself, then you have done the work of the proclamation of the gospel. Then in our terminology, you would have been effective evangelizers because people would say, people would say that this was the work of the church. And you know, in relationship to the religious women in habits and so forth over the years, I think there's been a concerted effort to discredit them for this very reason. To, in other words, to make up horrendous stories. Not that there weren't probably troubled women in the ranks and not that, not that perhaps those troubled women did things that were, were unkind and, and, and hurtful to others. But the vast majority were the ones who did exactly what Marie-Louise de Marillac asked of them to do. They represented, the, they, they were the, the church working, Jesus Christ working through the church for the well-being of others. And they gave up everything for that. They were often loved and often revered. And despite the urban legends to the contrary, they were generally admired, revered, and respected. And the attack on them was an attempt to destroy the credibility of the church. And it was a vicious, malicious, and coordinated attack on the witness of Christ in the modern world. And so I think that we have to be, and, and then we started having comics about them, and we started having you know, absurd movies about them and things like that. Anything to discredit the church in a way to anything to discredit Jesus Christ. When people do things for the sake of others, they confront the darkness within the society that they live in. When they do things for their own sake, to feel good about themselves, to rise up in rank so that they can go further up on the table when they're invited to the banquet. When that happens, they contribute to the darkness of the world and that the good that they do is not lasting but fleeting. The good that they do is simply overcoming overcoming minor difficulties at the present moment and not letting any kind of lasting solution sink deep into the human spirit and into the human mind. No one is more appreciative of someone who does something for them because they care about them rather than because they think that they're doing good and therefore, what a good boy am I? And so this idea of humility as a primal virtue of the Christian life, this idea of being knowing the truth about the self, of knowing the truth about the self in relationship to Jesus Christ, knowing the truth about the self in the way that we live our lives, expending our energy not just on those whom we love, but those who actually need us also, doing all of that for the sake of the kingdom of God, is what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel today. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.